Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, uh, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I must tell you this is a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. We truly appreciate everyone for joining us here, especially with everything going on in the city, like the Preakness, and if I may uh, take a point of personal privilege, um, the Lady won. We also want to give a special thank you for their patience. Um, the people that are on the third floor in the Wheeler Auditorium, hello. And we um, hope that you will enjoy the evening as well. We are honored tonight to have with us award-winning and best-selling author, Michael Pollan. It is truly wonderful when a person who writes about and cares about our health and food gets an audience that's like a rock star. <laughs> and we want to thank our wonderful partner for the, this great event, Baltimore Greenworks. We're excited to work with them. And this is the kickoff of their Sustainable Speaker Series. And you may know that Baltimore Greenworks is a small but very mighty nonprofit organization governed by a volunteer board of directors with one staff person. And I think she's here, Ms. Morgan. That staff person is working very hard at the front door, they're telling me. Greenworks strives to embrace Maryland's diverse communities by offering programming that educates everyone on sustainable ways of living. And we'd also like to thank the sponsors for this evening, Annie E. Casey Foundation, Lorenz Incorporated, and the Living Classrooms Foundation. Now you may also know that the Pratt Library has definitely become an it destination for award-winning and marquee name authors. Just in the past couple of months, we've had Pulitzer Prize winners, National Book Award recipients, and best-selling authors like Juno Diaz, Annette Gordon-Reed, Tavis Spiley, Cornel West, Chuck Palahniuk, and somewhat controversial figures, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. Each of them, each of them attracted hundreds of patrons, young and old, to each of the programs, and we are delighted that we are seeing so many people that um, are of a certain age that aren't uh, qualifying for Social Security, they told me to say, <laughs> to see so many young people here with us, too. We pride ourselves on offering a broad spectrum of ideas and information for everyone, and people have a right to choose what they want to see and hear and view. And in the few weeks ahead, we have more great lectures and authors. Pulitzer Prize winner Leonard Pitts will be here on May 27th to discuss his book, Before I Forget. And on June the 4th, PBS host Gwen Eiffel and University of Maryland law professor Sherilyn Eiffel kick off a brand new series that we are offering in cooperation with the Open Society Institute, How We Talk About Race. So we hope that you will join us for these programs. And we also have a sign-up for two free tickets to the performance or presentation by Frank Rich. 
And if you get a chance on your way out, please do that. You can also check our website, prettlibrary.org, or pick up a copy of our newsletter, Compass. Or you can now check us out on Facebook. You can Twitter us. And we even have a MySpace page. All of this would not have been possible without the generous contributions and support of our donors and patrons, but most of all, for all of the people like you who come. And we hope that you will continue to join us and support us during these challenging times. Now back to this evening. To introduce our wonderful guest and lead our conversation is a person who is currently the Director of Food Service for the Baltimore City Public Schools. Before relocating to Baltimore, Anthony Geraci was the developer and executive director of the FIRST Course, a culinary training and job placement program for people who are developmentally disabled or recovering from substance abuse or mental illness. Tony is also a chef, a food service consultant, and the former food service director for the Conval School District in southwestern New Hampshire. He has been an enthusiastic supporter, practitioner, and architect of the National Farm to School Movement. Tony is a native of New Orleans and a third-generation restaurateur who did a traditional apprenticeship with four-star hotels and restaurants throughout the U.S. And since his arrival in Baltimore this summer, Tony has increased the breakfast participation in the schools from 8,500 meals per day to more than 30,000 meals served each day. Quite an accomplishment. His department has taken over a city-owned 33-acre farm, which is now being used for vocational, vocational training and organic food production for the Baltimore City Schools. His focus, as you can see, and commitment is on nutrition and vocational training in the hospitality industry for the students of Baltimore. So please welcome to the Any Pratt Free Library, Tony Geraci. Good evening, Baltimore! So what do you think? Real food for real kids, a Philly winning the Preakness, and Michael Pollan here in one night. What do you think of that? Amazing stuff. Things are afoot in the Charm City. Um, I am uh, floored. Michael Pollan is uh, uh, one of my heroes, and uh, I have sort of dubbed him uh, the accidental oracle of the truth. And that truth is about food. And what we eat and how we eat it, how it affects the world and how it affects our lives and our neighbors. Um, and, and not only us, but the world that we live in. His simple approach, eat food, not much, and mostly plants, uh, is pretty simple stuff, right? And uh, the world sort of sees it as rocket science right now, you know? And uh, it speaks volumes about um, our need to... Uh, reevaluate our approach and our understanding of food. In one generation, fruit has become a flavor and not a food, right? And to prove that, I like props. I bring props with me. In my office this week, a guy came in, right? This uh, sales guy. 
and he was telling me about the virtues of this, uh, of this apple thing right here, right? And uh, he was telling me how the uh, School Nutrition Association just endorsed this. The USDA has endorsed it. Um, and uh, uh, that this is now an equivalent to uh, one serving of fruit. So that's fruit, right? So when I was a kid, that was an apple, all right? And then somewhere in the last 20 years, this became an apple. So this is a concentrate from China. So we went from this to this to this, and we wonder why our kids are confused about food because we do this to them every day. So um, uh, it uh, gives me great pleasure to introduce a man who single-handedly in the last five years has sort of uh, put the world on its edge and started thinking about food. Um, he... Um, he uh, 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 started introducing crazy concepts like maybe only, you know, not eating meat for one day a week. So in our new school lunch menu for next year, we have meatless Mondays, you know. And it wasn't just about not serving meat on a day, but it was an economic driver for us. And it was a way to sort of introduce, um, you know, a different sort of idea of eating, um, our little 33-acre farm was a place that, um, it was an orphanage at one time, and it, it was abandoned, and it was a place where, um, um, it was like a throwaway place. It's where they sent kids that had no other place to go, you know? And uh, uh, four years ago, when they offered me this job, I, 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 I turned it down because I didn't think that there was the leadership in place to make it possible uh, to serve kids real food. Um, and uh, part of the assessment of the job was sort of looking at the assets, and I had said that I had had great success uh, developing the farms to school network with greenhouses and teaching kids uh, how to grow food. And uh, the single most powerful teaching tool that I've ever experienced in my life was to watch a kid put a seed in the ground, and that seed grew into a plant, and then they harvested whatever that plant grew, and then they cooked whatever that plant produced and served it to their peers, it forever changes the way they look at food. It's no longer a consumptive act, you know? It's something so much more. It teaches them uh, about stewardship, and it teaches them about responsibility, and it teaches them about the greater virtues in life, you know, the simple things, you know? Uh, and, uh, uh, the kids of Baltimore uh, have had an opportunity to do that. So far this year, we've had over 2,500 kids visit our little farm. You know, we've created over 30 school gardens from seedlings that were started at that little farm. You know, it is our goal that within this year that we will have a school garden in every single school in this city. So every single child gets an opportunity to see something better. You can, you can talk to kids about the virtues of whole foods uh, and, uh, you know, show them pictures of these beautiful ripe red tomatoes. But until a child gets an opportunity to pick a cherry tomato from a vine that he or she grew and and pluck it off, and it's still warm from the summer sun, and you pop that in their mouth, and that explodes with flavor, that's something that you can't teach in a book. That's something that you can't describe. It's something that you can only experience. 
And it's something that is so easy to do that we should be doing this every day for our kids. These kids, you know, I know it sounds hokey and I know it sounds cliche. Uh, in the recent months, we've been giving away trillions of dollars, right, to, to, to spur our economy on, to build a new nation, right? You know, it behooves us as a nation to maybe keep these kids alive and healthy long enough to pay that bill. Right? You know, what about that stimulus? So, um, you know, this year um, uh, I inherited uh, a lot of the contracts that my predecessors left with me, uh, and I wasn't able to do as much as I wanted to do in the first year, but I was able to offer fresh fruit to all of our kids every day, uh, and it's been making a difference. Um, uh, I eat peaches with kids that have never eaten a peach before in their lives. You know, I sat with these second grade boys at a table on the first day of school and one kid was rubbing a peach across his face and I said, it's supposed to feel like that, you know? And another kid is sort of like breathing deep into this peach, you know? These were, you know, tree-ripened, Maryland-grown peaches. And the third kid bit into this peach and the juice is running down his face and down his arms and onto the table and you can see this wave of emotion come across his face for an eight-cent peach. We sort of change the way this child looks at fruit. Pretty simple stuff. So look, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you uh, the author of five books and many, many articles, uh, the former editor of Harper's, uh, a frequent contributor to the New York Times, an educator at the University of California, Berkeley, a hunter, a gatherer, a gardener, and an outlaw from the Corn Refiners Association of America, Mr. Michael Pollan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, it's, it's very uh, moving to see so many of you here to talk about these issues. And it's a particular honor to be introduced by someone who is a, uh, a leader of this movement, who is uh, practicing what I merely preach um, every day and, and trying to change the food culture of Baltimore and, in turn, of the whole country. So it's a, it's a great honor to be here with Tony and to share this stage with him. I'm just going to say a couple words, and then we're going to sit down, and, and uh, um, he's going to ask me some questions, and we're going to go back and forth, and then we'll take your questions, because uh, I'd love to hear what's on your mind. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about this movement, um, because your presence here is a political statement. The fact that so many people, you're not just here because of me or because of Tony, you're here because you sense a political current uh, that is now coursing through our country uh, to reform the American food system. Um, and it has been, it's not just here, I can report, I've been going around the country quite a bit in the last year or so, uh, but it is everywhere. And it is not commonly understood yet to be a movement. Um, and I, sometimes I say food movement and, and some people look at me kind of funny, but it's because it's got many, many different uh, faces, and they don't all yet, um, 
you know, congeal as a movement. But you've got the school lunch piece, which I think is one of the most important. You have the community food security movement, trying to get food into underserved areas. You've got, um, you've got the whole animal welfare issue. You have organic agriculture. You have the labeling movement to give us more transparency in the food system. So you've got people working, and you've got students working to reform. These are college students working to reform the food system uh, all over the country right now. Um, so that there is um, a movement. It doesn't yet have that platform exactly, um, but that's what we're working on. And it very much is a movement driven not just by policymakers, but by consumers doing this, voting with their forks. Um, and one of the beauties of this issue, and I think it's one of the reasons that it's attracting so many young people today, at a time when so many of the issues we face, from the economic crisis to the climate change crisis, are so overwhelming, so daunting, make us feel so helpless that food is an issue where we can all do something today. And that something, which is to say voting with our forks, making choices with some consciousness of their real-world effects, spending our dollars thinking not just like consumers but like citizens, we have seen this change the world. Organic agriculture was created by consumers voting that way. The local food movement, what's going on in farmers' markets, CSA, is created by consumers and producers connecting with one another with no help from the government. Um, so it is, I think, a very empowering issue. And that is one reason that I think young people have seized it. Young people understand that the personal is political, as we used to say in the 60s, and that's nowhere more so than with our food choices. Food and your food choice really is proto-political. It's your first political act. You think about your child sitting in that high chair, and you are bringing in that forkful of food you want your child to eat. And he or she, in their first expression of political power goes, mm-mm, no. And in every language, apparently, every culture, no is this turn sideways, and it's all about avoiding that forkful of food. It is. And that's our first political act. It's our first assertion of autonomy, of power. And I believe food remains. That decision of what you're going to take in your body and what you refuse to take into your body is where politics begins. And I think that's one of the reasons this issue has seized so many people. So we're going to talk a little bit about food politics and um, school lunch and, and nutritionism and the, and the whole dysfunctional relationship we Americans seem to have with food. Um, so I'm going to invite Tony to join me on the stage, and we'll converse for a half hour or so, I guess, 40 minutes, and then we'd be very happy to take your questions. Where do you want All right, I have to get my questions here. And the first question is, what's your favorite cuss word? <laughs> my favorite cuss word? I just... Oh, God. There's so many wonderful <laughs> ones, aren't there? If you ask my son, he would say, shit. <laughs> that that's what he hears me say more than many others. Um, so you need a microphone. 
So there's a lot of work attached to eating well and finding real food. If a chicken is free range, is there any way to really know its history? <laughs> well, you're talking about the challenge of labeling. And it's true. It's, it's, it is kind of complex. And one of the things I learned when I was working on Omnivore's Dilemma, which was you know, my first kind of foray, foray into food detective work and, and trying to figure out what do the labels mean and where does the food come from, the word free range when attached to chicken or eggs is, you know, a little less than meets the eye. I mean, when we hear the term free range, we picture, we, a picture rises in our mind, and it's a chicken outdoors. Um, very often that's not the case. Very often it's a chicken indoors, not in a cage, which in the case of eggs is, is an improvement, although broilers have never been in cages. They're just in these big chicken houses. So I went to a, a free-range organic poultry operation in California that shall go nameless. No, let's name it. Petaluma Poultry. And, um, and when I got there, I saw, you know, this... I, went, I, st- I had to put on my biohazard suit because these are such uh, immune-suppressed creatures without antibiotics that they're very nervous about disease. And I stepped into this house that had 40,000 chickens... And which is somewhat less crowded than you would find in the chicken houses that Purdue is operating near here. Um, and, uh, and I said, well, whoa, what, what's with the... Fr- I don't see any free range. We're indoors. We're, you know, and, they, and they pointed to two little doors at either end of this, you know, this shed that was the length of two football fields. And they said, there's the door. There's the door. And I said, yeah, but the, the door is closed. Um, and they said, well, we don't open it until they're five weeks old because we're really afraid they'll get sick out there. Now, this is California. This is not like snowy, you know. This isn't cold. And so we wait till they're five weeks old, and then we open the doors. And two doors for 40,000 birds. And I said, and what happens when you open the doors? Oh, nothing. They don't go outside. You know, maybe there's an outlier that might step outside, but they've never been outside before. Why would they go outside? The food's inside. The water's inside. They stay, you know, they stay here. That's what they're used to. And, um, and I said, okay, so you let them out at five weeks if they want to go. And how long do they live? And they said, seven weeks. <laughs> and that's when I realized that outdoor free range was more of a vacation option than a, a real <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> So, I think what you need to look for in chickens, if you can find it, is pastured chickens. When you see that term, that means they've really been outside and they're actually eating bugs and grass. And if you ever can find those um, products, which increasingly you can find, it is a really superior product. Well, we just um, uh, brought in 50 chickens at our little farm uh, two weeks ago, so we're kind of excited about that to... uh, start um, actually free-ranging them as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, vacation condos. Um, So what do we do to rebuild a a healthy and responsible food system? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, (laughs) Well, I think that we start really doing the kinds of things you're doing. I mean, I I, I think that uh, local procurement is, is really a key. And I mean, I think the big goal is to re-regionalize our food system. Um, it's not to say we're going to be able to get everything local. I mean, we've lost a lot of farmland near our cities. But there are so many virtues to reestablishing 
strong, vibrant local food economies. Um, one is the energy saved. Very, very important. Another is the preserving of farmland that happens when you have a vital local food economy. The other is the food is fresher. The other is the food is more diversified. Because if you're growing for a local market, you're probably not going to grow one thing. Uh, you know, if you go to the farmer's market, you just can't be the potato guy. You're going to need a few other crops. And as soon as you have more than one crop and you start diversifying your farm, suddenly you don't need that many pesticides. Suddenly you don't need that much fertilizer. All these other benefits. And suddenly you're sequestering carbon. Uh, so all these other benefits accrue. So I think the first step, and one of the most important, is to get the government, which buys an immense amount of food for schools, for prisons, for military bases, for federal and state offices, to devote a certain percentage of all that money to farmers within a certain radius of the city. And I don't know exactly how to define local food. I mean, you're doing it on a state basis, sure. right? You've got a nice small state, so that works. But in California, that wouldn't work. Um, if we said local food was all California food, we'd end up with a lot of industrial food. Um, so it depends on where you are. I mean, every food shed, it's going to be a little bit different. So I think that's really an important first step we can take. There's a many, many other things we need to do, though. I mean, we need to address our, our agricultural policies. I mean, the fact is, we have the food system that our agricultural policies give us. In other words, we subsidize a very small number of crops, corn, soy, wheat, rice, and cotton. We don't subsidize anything else. And it's no wonder that these five crops are grown in huge amounts, far more than we need, um, creating this surplus of what turn out to be very unhealthy calories. High fructose corn syrup from the corn and all the other weird ingredients on the side of a Twinkie. Uh, those all come from corn or soy, hydrogenated soy oils. So we, we're subsidizing the least healthy calories in the supermarket which is crazy because we have this health care crisis. So on, on the one hand, you know, the, the government is, is worrying about our health because they're going to have to pay for it. And on the other, they're ruining our health by subsidizing precisely the wrong kind of food. So we need to address that. I mean, there's a lot that has to be done with the farm bill. And I, it, it really is one of the most important pieces of legislation that nobody pays attention to because it has a direct bearing on your health. It has a direct bear, bearing on the health of the environment. And we regard it as this parochial piece of legislation. We let the congressman from Illinois and Iowa decide. We started um, um, addressing that here in Maryland. Uh, this year, uh, in the Baltimore City Public School System, we wrote the very first RFP in Maryland history calling for only Maryland-grown fruits and vegetables to be purchased by the school district. Uh, and we worked hard to get local farmers involved in that. Yeah, they need a... And, uh, uh, we got a produce uh, distribution company to purchase from small farmers so that a farmer that produces 200 cases of product can uh, uh, compete with a farmer who produces 2,000 cases of product uh, on a fair trade basis. And uh, uh, next year will be our first year uh, prototyping this. But we wrote this RFP in a way that my colleagues around the state can piggyback off of that. So we're really hoping for a big change. But aren't change. there aren't there rules in the USDA school lunch program the that rules. make that hard? 
Yeah, there are a lot of rules. Give me an example of a rule you'd like to see thrown out, and we'll see what we can do. Okay, so the uh, so the um, the Department of Defense, as weird as it sounds, runs the Fresh Fruits and Vegetables Program for the child nutrition um, um, piece, right? Is there, is there any reason for that? Yeah, so the genesis of the child nutrition program was that um, during World War II, uh, they had to turn away a lot of conscripts because uh, they had rickets and they were malnutrition. So the government, in its infinite wisdom, thought that, you know what, if we feed these kids, they're going to become stronger and better and we'll be able to draft them to fight in some more. So that's the genesis of the school lunch program. It's crazy, huh? Uh, Baltimore City, however, was one of the first in five cities in America that offered a school lunch program, uh, and it began in 1925. So Baltimore has always been pretty cutting edge with stuff. But to get back to the DOD, so uh, the government gives me, say, $300,000 a year to buy fresh fruits and vegetables from the DOD, right? But they want me to buy Washington apples for $56 a case. I can buy Maryland apples for $6 a case and feed 50,000 more kids. Look, I appreciate the money, don't get me wrong, but let me be a better steward with that money. Let me be a better steward with your tax dollars and spend that money locally. I think that anytime there's a taxpayer-supported food system, then maybe the taxpayers should get the best bang for the buck. Then maybe we should source the ingredients locally before we look outside of our community. See, I mean, and there's, a, there's so much reform that begin, can, can be done at the level of the USDA also. I mean, you know, there used to be a rule that you had to buy your food from the lowest cost provider. Exactly. No matter how far away it was, no matter how poor the quality was. And in the last farm bill, that was changed. Right. So that local food, uh, local, uh, food service at, at uh, schools could locally source. So there was one obstacle that was re- removed. But, of course, there's a resource question, too. Yeah. And, and getting them to spend a little bit more money on school lunch. What, what is the federal allotment for a school lunch? Um, like, to feed a child, I get, like, a total of, like, $2.44. Now, from that $2.44, I have to pay labor. I have to pay the overhead. I have to purchase the food. Uh, and what happens is you wind up spending $0.40 cents at best out of the money that they give you on actual food. And the rest is gobbled up in costs, you know? So how do you feed kids like that, you know? Well, it, you don't. I mean, you don't feed them well. And, and I think that, the, um, that, you know, this year is the school lunch reauthorization. It is the political issue around food, I think, for this year. And there is going to be a big campaign to, to reform school lunch. And nothing in the short term could do more to reform the whole food system then putting more resources into it, changing the nutritional standards. You know, everybody thinks they got sodas out of the schools when Clinton cut that deal, but basically the machines just moved out of the lunchroom, right? right? And they moved down the hall. They're still in the schools. And there's a real move to raise the nutritional standards to get that sort of fast food out of the schools. So that's a fight to really pay attention to um, this year. Slow Food USA... And slow, the Slow Food Baltimore is represented here tonight, I know. Uh, they're going to be really leading uh, a, uh, an organizing effort around school lunch reauthorization. I urge you to go on their website and uh, you know, sign up so you get advisories about it.
Yeah, and, and, and call your congressmen and call your senators and talk to them about this. This is critical. You know, um, it's unrealistic to have this expectation that our educators are going to be able to deliver their lesson plan to kids that are hungry or jacked up on sugar, you know. How, how do they do their job, you know, if we can't provide you know, basic services around food. I mean, we provide buses and books and desks and teachers. So why don't we take this the next step and let's provide good nutrition uh, to our kids so our kids can succeed and be successful. And the other, the other dimension of this that I think is really important is that, um, you know, we need to reform the food culture in this country. I mean, we have become a country of fast food eaters. Um, the, 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 the critical life skill of how to cook is in trouble. It's collapsed, our cooking culture. Uh, half of the money we spend on food is spent outside the home. Yeah. We're letting corporations cook for us. And one of the things we've learned in the last few years is they don't cook that well. They cook with lots of salt, lots of fat, Lots of sugar, very, as you understand, yeah, really cheap ingredients that press our buttons and are very seductive. And you're not going to change that food culture until you, you teach children how to eat in a different way. And that sounds very kind of patronizing. Oh, you're going to teach my kid how to eat. But the thing to remember is the schools are already teaching your kids how to eat. You know, when you give kids chicken nuggets and tater tots and 10 minutes to eat... You're teaching them how to be the next generation of fast food consumers. And um, we're never going to get anywhere as long as we keep doing that. I agree. I I, I was a former broker for uh, Tyson Foods, so nobody knows chicken nuggets better than I do. And uh, uh, the 38 ingredients that make up a chicken nugget have very few um, things to do with chicken, you know. And the parts they do have to to do with chicken, you don't want to know about. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right, so that brings us to our next question. You urge people to eat food, not much, mostly not, plants. Not too much. Not too much. Mostly plants. Um, have you gotten criticism from the meat guys? <laughs> you know, it's funny, the mostly plants part of that. I mean, I, I should give you a little bit of background on that little haiku. And for the English teachers out there, I know it's not technically a haiku. <laughs> but it's, you know, three lines. It's the rules. It, yeah, it's okay. Um, and, you know, I got to that after a year of researching and trying to answer this question. What do we know about the links between how we eat and our health? And how should we eat if we're concerned about our health? And as a journalist, normally the, the more you learn about a subject, the more complex it becomes. And normally you just realize, oh, shit, that, <laughs> that very nice kind of framework or conceit I had to write about this, it's falling apart. It's, it's more subtle, more ambiguous than I thought. But when it came to nutrition and health, the deeper I went, the more science I read, the simpler it got. And it all came down to eat food. And first I thought, that's all I need, eat food, two words. But then I realized, well, there's the quantity issue, not too much. And then there is a little bit of a content issue, mostly plants. And then I thought, there it is, I've got it all. And I was a little alarmed because I had promised many more words to my publisher. (laughs) And seven, you know, does not a book make. Um, But the mostly plants has upset people the most. And it's equally upset the meat people and the vegetarians. The vegetarians are really upset that I didn't go all the way and said only plants. 
and the meat people that, you know, I'm somehow dissing this, their favorite food. And, but it's a, it's a great example of how we think about food in such black and white terms. You're either for meat or you're against meat. Well, how about a little meat? You know, that that's not an acceptable... We really are Manichaean in our, in our thinking about food. It's all good and evil. It's the good nutrient, the evil nutrient. It's the good food, the bad food. And meat's a classic example. I, mean, I love meat, but I also understand that too much meat is not a good thing and that there's enormous um, value in reducing our meat consumption from a health point of view and from an environmental point of view. I mean, meat is, you know probably the biggest contributor you make to climate change is your meat eating. The average American eats nine ounces of meat a day. That's more than a half a pound. And think about all the vegetarians you're eating for also. Um, So that is immense. If you cut out meat entirely, you would reduce your carbon footprint by a quarter, 25%. Um, Is that going to happen? I don't think so. And that's why I think this, this Meatless Monday campaign is just a, is a really smart step. Because if you do that, everybody can imagine going a day without meat, even the biggest carnivore, except possibly my son. Um, and, um, you know, and, and in the process of doing that, you would rediscover vegetables. You would rediscover that, oh, yeah, you can make a delicious meal without meat. And by the way, if the whole country did this... Uh, you know, it would be the equivalent of taking 20 million mid-sized cars off the road. It's not trivial. So, you know, the Center for Livable Future right here has been promoting this Meatless Monday campaign, and I think it's, it's, it's a really good idea. Because, you know, it's hard to imagine, for most of us, not driving for a whole day or not heating our house for a whole day or not doing a whole lot of things for a whole day not taking a shower, whatever it is. But I think we can all imagine that one day a week without meat. So um, back to the meat. So there's this raging uh, sort of debate over grass-fed, range-fed, grain-fed. What's the deal with beef? You're talking about beef. Yeah. Well, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, when I was doing Omnivore's Dilemma looking at the meat system. I bought a steer and followed it through the process and wrote an article about it and then a book chapter. And um, it really changed the way I eat meat. I mean, I stopped buying feedlot meat, industrial meat, beef. Um, I just, you know, if you've been on a feedlot and you've stood in the manure up to your knees and watched the miserable animals and watched how sick this diet makes them, and um, you, you really lose your taste for feedlot meat uh, pretty quickly. And then if you go to the slaughterhouse, forget it. Um, and, but I also saw this alternative to this way of producing meat. You know, and I was ready to swear off beef. And a lot of people who read that article did swear off beef. I, I, I fear I created many, many vegetarians. I shouldn't say I fear. But, I, but I, I've also created a lot of carnivores, as it turns out. But there was this alternative, um, which is grass-fed beef, grass-finished beef. Because all beef is grass-fed for a certain amount of time. It, they can't tolerate the corn until they're six or eight months old. Um, And that that was one of the most sustainable food chains I'd ever seen. And if you think about it, you know, grass is this amazing plant. And you've got, you know, wonderful grass in the state. Grass grows really well in Maryland. And you have the sun feeding the grass and the grass feeding the ruminants because we cannot eat grass ourselves, lacking a rumen. Um, 
and the ruminants feeding us. And if you graze those animals rotationally, in other words, don't just put them out on a pasture and let them fend for themselves, but move them every day or every other day, something really interesting happens. And I saw this when I was on Joel Salatin's farm in Virginia. Um, what happens is that the, um, when an animal, when a ruminant grazes a, a pasture, the, the plant, something very interesting happens. The grass, say, is 18 inches high when the, when the ruminant comes in, and he, and he or she cuts it down to about 2 inches, and the plant has about an equal amount of root mass and uh, leaf mass. And the plant kills off a comparable amount of root mass because it's trying to keep its roots and shoots in balance. And those of you who garden know that you know, when you transplant, you have to be sensitive to that. If you have too much green, not enough roots, the plant will wilt. Um, what happens to those roots when the plant kind of sheds them is that they break down. And they are consumed by the soil bacteria, the fungi, the earthworms, the beetles. And those roots are digested by the soil, which is really the earth's stomach in a way. And that digested root becomes new soil. And this is how soil is made. And this is how that amazing soil in the American Middle West was created by bison and grass in this wonderful partnership creating soil from the bottom up. And now there's, what, 10 feet of it, or there was 10 feet before we started eroding it in places like Iowa. But all this soil that is created, of course, is carbon that has been removed from the air. And that this way of producing beef is one of the most efficient ways to take carbon out of the atmosphere, where, of course, we have too much of it, and put it safely back under the earth. So... I just find grass-finished beef one of the more sustainable um, food chains available to us. And, and that argument that I've just made to you is, is how a certain number of uh, vegetarians were encouraged to lapse after reading that book. <laughs> so the Obamas, um, speaking of soils, uh, just uh, planted a garden at the White House. So what are your hopes for this administration? Well, first of all, I think that what Michelle Obama did with that garden is uh, really important. Um, I think she, by, by planting a garden, by talking about food the way she has talked about it, and, you know, she's been to, to soup kitchens that, that serve fresh food, because most uh, food banks serve processed food, basically, because it's the imperishable stuff. But she's highlighted these food banks that serve real food. She's talked about the importance of serving real food to your kids and cooking for them. I think this is revolutionary. You know, these words that she's been saying to most of the people in this room seem like, duh. But to a great many Americans, they are um, very novel. And I'll just give you an example. I mean, two days after she did that food bank appearance, right before she planted the garden, she was talking about real fresh food and the importance of vegetables and how to get kids to taste vegetables. I got a call from one of the big cable networks, Lifetime or Discovery, and they said, and the executive producer called and said, so we want your help. We're trying, we want to do a big series on this kind of food Michelle is talking about. I love it. I said, I, all right. Um, you know, and that, so you realize that a first lady talking about something takes an issue that has been, you know, might be familiar to readers of the New York Times magazine and, and, but is not familiar to a good housekeeping or Oprah, you know, world 
and suddenly it becomes that. So I think it's really important. And the garden has already spawned at least a million gardens. You know, it's a small garden. It's only 1,500 feet, but it, in fact, has created a great many other gardens. It's responsible for thousands of acres of American lawn being turned over this spring. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And last thing... You know, she said something interesting when she planted this garden. She said it was an organic garden. Now, you have that, she did not have to go there, right? And I'm sure she understood, she weighed the significance of that word. But that is a fighting word in this food movement. The industry finds that incredibly threatening. And they have already, in their cordial way, because she is a first lady, have fought back. And I don't know if you saw that. Well, did you see John Stewart on Thursday night? Yeah. You should go on the website and take a look. Samantha Bee did this great piece about the pesticide industry's reaction to her garden. And they argue in perfect seriousness that her garden is going to lead to mass starvation. <laughs> because if America gives up on pesticides, there won't be enough food for everybody and we will die. Um, and the. Um, the, the, a group called the Crop Life Association, which is the trade group for the pesticide makers, for DuPont and Monsanto. It's a wonderful Orwellian euphemism, the Crop Life. It should be the Bug Death Association. You know, let's, let's call a spade a spade. And um, they wrote a letter to Michelle uh, Obama saying, um, you know, you're sending a really troubling message about, about chemical agriculture and how important our, our products are and how, how, many, how much more food is produced because of our products. And we urge you to use some of our crop protection products in your garden, you know, whether you need them or not. Um, so I think she sent a very important message with that garden and that I think she has joined the fray. And I think she actually is in a position to drive a lot of very important change because... It's important to remember that this food system, as much as the people in this room understand it's failing us and has all these hidden uh, costs, moral, ecological, health, political, for a great many Americans, it works just fine. You can get a lot of food with a very little bit of money in this country. You know, for less than an hour's wage at the minimum wage, uh, you can go into a fast food outlet and get thousands of very tasty calories. So uh, before we can drive real change at the policy level, we need to um, uh, raise consciousness about this issue. And we need to kind of reframe what constitutes being a good parent with regard to food, that it is a matter of cooking for your children, serving them real food, not taking, to them, taking them to McDonald's because they want to go to get a toy that comes with their, their, uh, their meal. So anyway, I think what she's doing is really important. I think there are interesting things happening, though, at the USDA as well, and that there, are, there is an opportunity for change uh, right now that we haven't seen in a generation. So I'm very encouraged, but much stands in the way. And, you know... Obama has indicated that he gets this issue, that he really can connect the dots between the way we grow food 
and the climate change crisis, between the way we grow food and the health care crisis, between the way we grow food and the energy crisis. He understands all those links. He's a great dot connector. But don't assume because he understands it that he will do much about it. It will take a movement. It will take a great deal of pressure because he's up against these agriculture committees in the Congress, which really stand in the way of reform, especially on the House side. And, um, you know, he spoke to somebody I know about this issue who pushed him, you know, on this and had this conversation with him before he became president, after he was elected. And his answer to this guy was, show me the movement. I want to see the movement. Then I'll move. So we, we all need to keep this in mind. We need to, you know, as much as you might agree with him on what he says about food, you need to beat on him too. All right. So um, urban agriculture seems like one of the only real solutions to bringing diversity to eating well. Um, and certainly in the inner city where there are these vast food deserts that exist. Um, so what's your, what's your take on the urban agriculture movement? Well, I think urban agriculture right now is one of the real bright spots, actually. You know, people talk about, you know, this is an elitist movement and, you know, and there's way too much attention, you know, paid to, you know, white guys like us and Alice Waters. And, and, but there's a whole other food movement going on that doesn't get the media attention, that doesn't hold the microphone, and that is people in the inner cities growing food. Um, you have Will Allen in Milwaukee, growing power. I don't know if you followed that at all, but that's, it's... It's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, he's doing very sophisticated. I mean, this is not just kind of planting a few beets in a city lot. I mean, we're talking about a very sophisticated polyculture system, diversified. He's growing fish in uh, rotation with, with salad greens and watercress so that the fish, the water from the fish containing the waste gets recirculated, passes underneath. The, uh, the watercress and the other greens, and they take up the nutrients and clean the water, and then the water goes back to the fish. And he's, um, uh, you know, it's just a really interesting system. In unheated greenhouses, or, or uh, not, not, that's technically not right, heated, they're hoop houses heated by compost, and he gets these really hot compost piles. He's a master of wormaculture, or vermiculture, whatever it's called. And, and, and so they generate enough heat to keep this whole system warm without using fossil fuels. These projects are really exciting. And he's also employing a couple dozen people at good wages, and they're selling this food in the inner city, also to local restaurants, training people in urban agriculture. You know, these are the green jobs that we need in the inner city. And it's not just happening there. I know there's very exciting things happening in Baltimore, in Detroit, in Oakland, um, so it's, you know, it hasn't yet had its moment on the media stage. It's about to happen, though. I mean, Will Allen's getting a whole lot of attention for this. He just got a MacArthur Award, a Kellogg Grant. The New York Times Magazine is about to profile him. Um, so we'll be hearing a lot more about it. And I think bringing kind of this new face to the food movement is really, really important. You know, I'm glad you say, said that because I have a shameless plug. He's going to be out at our little farm uh, June the 18th. Uh, and doing a farm tour and talking about uh, his work um, uh, in Milwaukee and how uh, it's interconnected to all of the cities uh, in America. So if you can, try to make it. Yeah, he's worth hearing speak. He's, uh, he's great on worms. <laughs> all right. So um, do you remember the old imitation food rule? Uh, do you think that thing is ever going to come back? Oh, I don't know. I, I guess I have to go back and explain that a little bit. Um, 
One of the, the, uh, one of the interesting peculiarities of, of the laws around food in this country is we used to have something called the Imitation Rule that was part of the Food and Drug Administration Act passed in 1938. And it basically was a response to the fact that we had this whole history of adulterated food. You know, Upton Sinclair wrote about it in the jungle. I mean, all the weird things that ended up in sausage. You know, I don't know, wallboard and much worse. And um, so we had this rule saying that if you were selling something called mayonnaise or cream cheese or sour cream and it didn't really have those things in it, or it had other things in it. You had to call it imitation mayonnaise, imitation sour cream, imitation cream cheese. And this was an enormous uh, bar to processed food in this country um, because they couldn't make something like no-fat cream cheese or low-fat cream cheese that had no cream or cheese in it because they'd have to call it imitation cream cheese, and nobody would buy it. It was the kiss of death in the market. So in 1973, the food industry, along with the American Heart Association, who thought re-engineering all these new products would be great to reduce our saturated fat intake, um, they petitioned the FDA to drop the imitation rule. And they did that. And they hid it in a whole set of other regulatory changes. And in fact, it was completely illegal because... It wasn't a regulation. It was an act of Congress. And the agency unilaterally just dropped it. So if there's any kind of, you know, public interest lawyer in the audience who wants to uh, call him on this, we could get it back. So losing the imitation rule in 1973 opened the door to that whole wave of marvels of food science, you know, from the snack well pack, you know, of this and that to the low-fat cream cheese, the low-fat this and that, the even the low-carb pasta and the low-carb bread, those are all technically imitations of those foods, and we accept them. So you're saying that strawberry flavor <laughs> is not... may not be strawberries? <laughs> yeah, and um, American cheese isn't really cheese. <laughs> Nor is it American. <laughs> Nor is it American. Well, That's great. So um, your books... Um, have really sort of propelled you into this rock star status on sustainability and sustainable foods. How does that, how does that feel? <laughs> like, like, like Diane Rehm would say, how does that feel, Michael Pollan? <laughs> well, it's, I've been on kind of a weird ride for a couple of years now. And, um, you know, but I, I, I totally get the energy in an audience. And I know it's, a, it's not about me and the way I write or play the guitar. It's really about this issue and the way I'm talking about it. And I've somehow found a, a register in which to address it that seems to resonate with people. And I don't know exactly why or how. But, um, but it really is not about me. I mean, it is, I'm a, I feel like I'm a vessel for very strong, those, those feelings I was describing, that, that sense of empowerment um, that is out there. And, um, you know, so, but it's, it's completely weird. Um, it's weird being recognized. It's, uh, you know, this is, I mean, one of the reasons we become writers is to stay in a room and not have to face 900 people every day. <laughs> and now I find myself spending more time in rooms with 900 people than alone with my computer. And that part of it's very troubling, actually. Um, uh, you know, I need to get back to the, to the word processor. 
Um, but it's very exciting to feel this energy. And, um, uh, you know, and that's all kind of wonderful. And, and you know, frankly, this, you know, you, you, have an, you get opportunities. You get opportunities to talk to policymakers and engage with people in government. And, and uh, you get a bigger microphone. And that, that's all, you know, that's a great thing because I have a lot to say. But, um, you know, when the culture... As a writer, when we, when we write a book... Um, you know, we throw it out there on the sea of public attention, and there is no way of knowing where the culture is going to be at the moment you publish. You start a book three years before you publish it, usually, and the culture is moving along very quickly and has its own, you know, it's always changing, and, and there are historical events that, that shift its attention this way and that. So there's no predicting what will just kind of hit the culture at the moment that the culture wants to be talked to about something. So I feel very fortunate about that, too. It's a great thing. So what's this journey brought you so far, you know, with all of the books that you've written? um, What's the most profound thing that you think you've come away from? I don't know. That's a a good one. Um, It's funny to to write knowing people are going to listen. I mean, I wrote, I've written for years and years and years, not knowing if anyone besides, you know, my wife and a couple of friends were going to pay attention. Um, And now I know, at least when I talk about this subject, that people will pay attention. And so that's a very sobering responsibility. You know, you really want to be careful and not make mistakes, (laughs) especially if you're talking about people's nutritional health. Um, so I find that, uh, you know, there is a, a certain sense of um, responsibility that all writers should feel all the time when you're, put, when you're putting pen to paper, that write as if people are going to, you know, um, change their lives or their thoughts based on what you say. I mean, all writers are, you know, we're all kind of power crazed, I mean, in a way. You know, we're trying to take over your brain with our words, you know, for a period of time and make you think our thoughts. That's a kind of weird idea, isn't it? But that's what, that's what literature is. That's what writing is. Um, so, but to do it with the sense that there will be many brains involved is sobering. I don't know where else to go with that. <laughs> so do uh, you want to take some questions? Yeah, I think that would be great. All right. uh, what's the format for questions? Are we going to just stand up? No, and... Somebody just stood up. Oh, wow. Apparently you're first. That guy can't be stopped. Yeah. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. I'd like you to meet my brother. Uh, it was very kind of you to say that. <laughs> Are there any questions? Right down here. All right. Oh, good. Let's, yeah, let's pass this mic around. Now I'm really on the spot. Um, you were talking about um, grass-fed beef, and, you know, it's sort of the new vegetarian. Uh, is it, if you're eating completely grass-finished beef, are you still committing that carbon footprint sin? That's a good question. Um, There is still an environmental impact. 
Um, there is methane production by these cows, and that that is a very serious greenhouse gas. And some research suggests that grass-finished uh, grass animals produce more methane than corn-finished. I haven't actually seen this, but people have mentioned it to me. I know my vegetarian friends do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that the, the, the impact on the land compensates for that um, to, to a, a degree. Where's your microphone? <laughs> um, there is a farm in Maryland that does completely grass-fed beef, and I'm so sorry I can't remember the name. Um, it's out near Frederick. Does anyone know? Hedge Apple. Hedge Apple Farms. And um, they, you know, the, I interviewed the farmer a year ago, and he pointed out to the field and said, you can't use this land for anything else. You know, so we're not wasting. Yeah. You know, we're using oh, yeah. Well, that issue, that's an important issue, too. I mean, one of the reasons that um, I'm not a vegetarian is that there are many places in this country that the best way to take protein off of the land is through meat production. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm sensitive to this because I lived in New England for a long time, which is not a good place for row crops. It's hilly and rocky, but grass grows really well for, you know, nine months of the year. And so that, you know, we have to look at what's the, what food chain, what kind of food production fits particular pieces of land. And there are those pieces of land where meat is the only thing you can grow. Um, and, you know, around the world, certainly this is true in mountainous areas, for example, uh, where sheep and goat production is the best way to get food off the land. So... When you take an environmental view and not just a moral ethical view, you, you, you end up a little bit more sympathetic to meat production. Um, so, you know, there is still, but it's not a, it's not a free pass. There's always a trade-off. Um, and, you know, but if you imagine expanding grass-fed beef production, let's say about 30 or 40 percent of all the land that's now growing corn and soy in the Midwest is really f growing cattle feed. That's what that all that corn and soy is going to. If you were to put that land back in grass, perennials, and put the animals on it, there would be an enormous gain in terms of the environment, in terms of climate change. Because that corn land, you know, it takes a half a gallon of oil to grow every bushel of corn, and that's before you move it around the country. Um, so if you, and you're losing carbon every year, it's running off into the Mississippi River and you've got all the nitrous oxide, uh, coming off of your fertilizer, um, which is a, as serious as methane as a greenhouse gas. So you see, if you, if you could, given that there is going to be some beef eating in this country, if you could change that beef system to a grass-based beef system, you would have an enormous gain, uh, in terms of greenhouse gas. And that runoff has sort of caused uh, this dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico the size of Delaware. In, in my hometown, in New Orleans, uh, people that made their living uh, shrimping all their lives can no longer do that uh, because uh, the, the, uh, 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 the areas to shrimp in are becoming increasingly smaller. Yeah, because of the fertilizer runoff. Right there. Nope, this, uh, this young lady right here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on um, raw dairy. I was hoping you'd mention more of raw dairy that as an option in some of your books. Um, well, you know, I think people should be able to, to drink raw milk if they want to. Um, 
I mean, when you think of all the other things they let us do. Um, I, you know, when I lived in Connecticut, I, there was a, uh, a raw milk dairy near me. And in Connecticut, actually, you know, we're, they're allowed to sell it in stores, not just uh, off the farm. And it was a wonderful product. Um, you know, it changed in taste as the year went on, uh, as the grasses changed. And there were actually times of the year when it wasn't that good, where it was kind of bitter, and then it would get really sweet. And it was kind of it really connected you to the seasons in an interesting way. Um, I think it's weird how many resources the government puts into keeping people away from, from eating this food, drinking this food. Um, and I don't understand exactly what that's about, but I think a political point is being made by doing that. You know, the government appears to be concerned for our health. But there is some risk, though, to drinking raw milk. I mean, there have been people who've been sickened by it around the country. Uh, on the other hand, there are a great many people who've seen their health improved um, because it's a, it's a more vital product. They're, you know, it's pasteurization and homogenization does bad things to milk. Um, and that there are people who believe that, um, you know, it, it's very good for dealing with allergies and all sorts of things. So I think, you know, people should be warned. There should be some kind of warning on it that you're taking a certain risk, but you should be allowed to do it. And, um, and, I, and raw milk cheeses, I think, you know, there's no reason that I've seen to, um, to make those illegal. Um, that, you know, it, it's very interesting how traditional... Uh, very, traditional agricultural techniques often have their own kind of safety built in. And, you know, there was a... You, you, you ever heard about the cheese nun, this woman in um, Connecticut? Yeah, you know, she wanted to make cheese on her monastery where she lived, and the government had a rule that the presses had to be metal, stainless steel. That seemed really clean and hygienic. And she was convinced that cheese didn't taste as good, and, um, and did a lot of research and found that there was something in the microbial action between the wood that was used traditionally and the cheese that actually made it a cleaner and better product. And, you know, if, 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 if something like raw milk cheeses have worked for a few thousand years, I think we should sort of leave them alone. <laughs> All right, right there with the mic. To, to touch on the grass-fed beef, uh, there's a few farms in the area uh, that are advertising grass-fed beef, but they're being finished off with corn. Why is that, and is there any harm in that? Well, the harm is confusing the consumer, um, and that is a harm. I mean, look, all beef is grass-fed for a part of its life, and so you need to, that's why you need to look for grass-finished. I think the USDA, though, now has a rule um, for the use of the term grass-fed. And it's not perfect, but it does mean you can't finish them on corn. I think you can finish them on hay or use hay, and there's a couple, you know, there's a couple loopholes in it, but they're not that big. Um, so, but you really want to ask those questions um, of, you know, are you finishing your animals on grass? Because there are people who are doing it really well up to the last two or three months. And for one reason or another, they want to finish them on grain, usually because uh, to, to get more marbling, um, but also, so there are certain times of the year when the grass isn't growing fast enough to really finish the meat well. Grass, it's very important to understand that grass-finished beef is a seasonal product. And meat, you know, we all talk about seasonality when we're talking about strawberries and blueberries and peaches. But meat was seasonal, too, and should be seasonal. And so you had chicken in the summer, and you had beef in the fall and pork in the winter. And there were times. And the reason you would, ha you would slaughter beef in the fall is you get that burst of growth 
of grasses in the fall after the, the summer heat dies down. And grass-fed beef is only good when the animals are gaining quickly. They have to be gaining a couple pounds a day. If they're losing, that's when you get that really tough and not very pleasant tasting grass-fed beef, which you often get. But, you know, the food industry wants that 12-month cycle. And so, um, so anyway, so what they do the other seasons is give it grain. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, I don't know. If you're going to eat that, you know. I, I think grass-finished is really what you want to look for. All right. Who has the mic? Right over here. Sir. You. That would be you. Here comes the mic. Here comes the mic. Wait one sec. I'm David Smith from Springfield Farm, 30 miles north of here. Thank you. The first thing I want to say, and I, I'll steal the words from Joel Salatin, uh, your book, Omnivore's Dilemma, was a ch- life-changing experience for us farmers. It brought everybody, a lot of these people included, out of the woodwork to our farms and to restaurants that we supply. So thank you for that. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Can I go back and say the real answer to that question you asked me earlier, what has been most thrilling about that, is hearing that kind of thing. That hearing that the words you write actually bring eaters to the door of farmers like this. That's very exciting. Thank you. I had no question. I just wanted to convey uh. that. <laughs> Young lady in front. Okay. I understand that the uh, school lunch program is going to get reauthorized, but, and I understand that the movement might be able to influence that. But I, what I've been able to read, Monsanto has just so much power. So do all the major growers. Here in Maryland, Purdue has so much power. We can't even get the bay cleaned up because the Purdue uh, company is, is contracting with all of the chicken growers, and, of course, they dictate how all that's done. And I, I just feel very unable to have any influence when you've got Monsanto and its lobbyists out there fighting for, of course, keeping everything exactly the way it is. That's my Yeah, comment. well, I think you're right. I think we're up against very powerful forces that have large influence. Uh, there's, a, there's a video on YouTube of the National Institute of Health holding hearings on nutritional standards for school lunch. You should search this. And, there is, uh, and they've annotated the picture. And the audience is Tyson and Cargill and Monsanto. And they're all there with their briefcases, these K Street guys. And they're making sure that there is no change in those nutritional standards that's going to hurt their business. And, um, you know, so how do you defeat that? Well, you defeat it with an organized political movement. Um, You know, you have to always remember, why do the congressmen uh, listen to the lobbyists? They listen to the lobbyists because they need money to run campaigns. Now, why do they need money to run campaigns? Because they need your votes, and that's how they get your votes. If you can show them that they can get your votes in another way, by being right on an issue that people are motivated about, 
that dilutes the power of the lobbying money. I know this during the Farm Bill. I would talk a lot to congressmen about this. And they would say, look, when we get 100 letters or 50 letters on an issue, and they're clearly not, you know, all, you know, some card that someone else has written and just pulled off and sent in, that really gets our attention as much as a check from Monsanto. Because that's what the check from Monsanto is for, to get those 100 votes. So an active and engaged citizenry can, to some extent, displace that power. And, you know, during the farm bill, the last farm bill fight in 2007, 2008, Nancy Pelosi, who really ran interference for the industry and for, the, and for Colin Peterson and the House Agricultural Committee, she got so much heat in her district. I know, because I was there. We were protesting in her district. She got editorials in her hometown paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, three cover stories on the farm bill in the San Francisco Chronicle. And she was so beaten up by that issue that she said to Colin Peterson, after they squeezed through this crappy bill, she said, we can't do it again this way. It's going to have to be different next time. So that's, that's really the only thing we can do. I mean, unless we're going to get campaign finance reform, which doesn't look like is on anyone's list of priorities. Um, but engaged uh, citizens. And, you know, I hope Slow Food really gets it together and that, that, that somebody like that group can organize congressional district by congressional district. But it, it really takes us, you know, giving them our email addresses so that when there is that amendment being voted on, the Monsanto amendment comes along, we can get those letters out on that day. That's what's really important. Vote, vote with your fork. Yes, sir. And your vote. Let me get a little feedback here. I just have a question about food safety. And now there's a push uh, with the administration, a new team. Hold the mic a little closer. There's a new team where they're focusing on killing the diseases that are in the facility, the processors, instead of focusing on the farm where many of these diseases are being created in the first place. Talk about grain finishing. You know, a lot of times E. coli is a problem because we're finishing cows on grain. We're also creating industry-created um, diseases. You know, their livers burn out, they, their stomachs, you know, we all know all that. But, you know, we even talk about swine flu. I mean, there's so many health issues, and I know that you mentioned on one of the great shows you've been on, on your tour, that no, the media is not even picking up on swine flu. They, they, they were forced by industry to start calling it H1N1 again, even though we know that it went through a Yeah, plane. as if we get it from an android. Right, exactly. Can you talk about the whole issue with, you know, why not go to the source, you know, the whole farm to fork and all that good stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, that, I think what you say is right. I think the tendency with a lot of these food safety problems is not to look at the systemic causes of them. So E. coli L157H7, for example, is a feedlot bug. It evolved on cattle feedlots in the early 80s because we were feeding them a diet so high in grain that we acidified the rumens. I, I won't go into all the details. We hadn't seen it before. Um, it's in the manure, 40 or 50 percent of feedlot cattle. It gets from the manure onto their hides. And in the slaughter process, when you're, when you're slaughtering 400 head an hour, it's very hard to be careful when you're taking those hides off. And so, as, as Eric Schlosser famously said, the shit gets in the meat. The focus is not on avoiding that happening. The focus becomes on treating it after. So we have acid washes 
And, you know, there's talk of irradiating beef. It's constantly, it's always Band-Aids on systems rather than re-examining systems. We also know, and research was done by a USDA scientist who works at Cornell, that putting the animals on hay or grass for five days before slaughter would remove 80% of the E. coli from their intestinal tracts. And the industry worked very hard to destroy that research um, because that would be really expensive and complicated to bring all that hay into all those feedlots. So it happens over and over again. We don't pay attention to the system. We don't connect the dots. And swine flu, we believe, um, originated on a Smithfield plant in Mexico. Um, Very intensive hog production. Um, You know, we've had swine flus before, but we also know that the way we're raising animals now in this intense confinement with with their immune systems destroyed uh, or dependent on antibiotics, that this is a perfect breeding ground for new viruses. And in fact, the Pew Commission on Animal Agriculture, which is a really important landmark study um, and not fringe at all. I mean, with a lot of mainstream industry people on it. Uh, it came out last year. It's worth searching. There is a line in there saying, the way we're raising hogs in this country creates a perfect breeding ground for new flu, lethal f- forms of swine flu. So we had our warning. And I just, I just saw over my, um, my email today that somebody is, uh, someone whose wife died from swine flu very recently is suing Smithfield which is a very interesting tact, and we'll see what effect that has. But the media is not talking about these links. I think you're absolutely right. And most of the food safety problems we have, um, you know, there's always been food safety, right? I mean, you know, Aunt Mabel's potato salad has killed people at church suppers for, you know, 100 years, but not very many, and it wasn't really a national story. So now we've concentrated our agriculture to such an extent that every time there is an outbreak, it affects a great many more people. When you're grinding, you know, 50 million hamburgers in one plant over the course of a week or two, and those hamburgers contain meat from 400 different animals from four or five different countries, that is what is in a hamburger patty today, if, one, if there's any kind of problem in any one of them, it will be in all of them. And so that is another argument for decentralizing the food system. So uh, I got the hook, and we need to start wrapping it up. Uh, do you want to have some closing thoughts on some things, or would you want one more closing question? Closing thoughts. Uh, how about one more question instead? One more question. Right there. Hi. I wanted to say thank you. Um, particularly to Mr. Tony for promising to put a city garden or a garden in every city school. And I wanted to say that the the Food is Elementary program has been working um, at Mount Washington Elementary, and now we're going to start a garden down at Brooklyn um, at Mari G. Farring Elementary School. But um, we want a big push in terms of getting cooking kitchens in every city school, not just in Baltimore, but throughout the country so that the, um, the ju- that justice is basically addressed in terms of um, letting children be exposed to the food that's going to carry them through to pay off the debt, but also to um, live a uh, meaningful life. Thank you. Well, uh, let me just say a word about cooking, because I, I really think cooking is a very... The more I look at this question, 
You know, it's not, we, we can't just ask the farmers to become more sustainable. I mean, the farmers do not have the power in this system. We spend $881 billion a year on food in this country, okay? Of that, you know how much the farmers clear? $69 billion, okay? You know how much the people who make the packages clear? The people who make the cellophane and the cardboard and print the health claims on the foods? They make $79 billion, $10 billion more than the farmers. Okay, so you've got to deal with the space between that $69 billion, and by the way, there's $14 billion in subsidies in that $69 billion. It's not even your dollars, all of it. And the $881 billion, that $700 billion that represents processing, marketing, um, food science, uh, complicating of our foods and moving it around the world. And that's us. That is us. That is our unwillingness to cook, to, to, to really give our money to the farmers to grow the good food and then prepare it ourselves. The farmers are getting about eight, seven or eight cents on the food dollar, and the rest is going to the manufacturers. And so we've got we to gotta get them another 80 cents at least. And the way you have to do that is learning how to cook and teaching our children how to cook. That really is the key to taking back control of, of your diet and of the food system. So that's really important work. And uh, I just would leave you with that thought. And thank you for your terrific questions and uh, your beautiful enthusiasm. Michael, thank you for uh, spending an thank evening you, in the Charm City. Sooner or later, he's going to run up against a wall. <laughs> I need cooking kitchens. Go to school board I would like to invite everyone to um, purchase your books with the Ivy Bookstore right there at our circulation desk, and Mr. Poem will be signing your copies of the books right here. So thank you for coming, everyone. <laughs>